Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestas for that opening music. And just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at CMiriam, that's C-M-I-R-I-A-M. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcast, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also find more, uh, find this uh, show and find links to this show at journalismofcolor.com or theuptake.org. You can reach us at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with any tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we're discussing the Eastside Housing Justice Summit, and as well as how we can support educators during this pandemic. We'll also be repeating an interview we recently played with Representative Rena Moran, who represents the Frogtown area at the Minnesota State Capitol. Uh, Representative Moran was recently announced as the chair of the Minnesota House Ways and Means Committee, so we wanted to take a moment to hear from her about um, the recent work of the House Select Committee on Racial Justice. A special thank you to our newest sponsor, The Uptake, where I work as executive director for their support of this show. You can check out The Uptake's work at www.theuptake.org. First up, we have an interview with Ben Werner, the project director for the East Side Housing Justice, about the East Side Housing Justice Summit being held on December 10. The event is being co-hosted by the East Side Housing Justice um, Organization, as well as Twin Cities Public Television. Here's that interview now. Hi, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us on air today. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We're really glad to have you on air. So, uh, Ben, uh, for our audience, it would be great if you could introduce yourself, uh, introduce your organization and your work, and then we can move into talking about the Housing Summit. Sure. Uh, My name is Benjamin Werner. I am the Housing Justice Program Director at the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, The the Freedom Library came about uh, about six years ago. Peter Ratcliffe, uh, the retired professor from McAllister, who started the library, and I think really there was a mission to inspire solidarity uh, between all sorts of different communities, but in particular the communities on the east side of St. Paul. Uh, and that is really where I started doing my work. Uh, and I can give an introduction to what I do in particular if you'd like me to. Uh, sorry, can you repeat that, that last bit? And I can, I can also introduce more specifically my work as well if you'd like me to. That would be great. Thank you. Sure. So our work began roughly two years ago. I was working at a small real estate brokerage on the east side called ABC Realty. Um, my boss at the time, Sian Thomas, and I started researching the racial housing gap in Minnesota. And I had come out of a, a little bit of an organizing background, had been involved in small business, and I had started working for Sian because I was interested in looking at how real estate development can serve the community versus profit off of the community. And I thought that Sian was doing a lot of that great work. So she and I started researching the racial housing gap in Minnesota, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, roughly 76% of white Minnesotans own their home and somewhere around 25 or 26 of African-American Minnesotans own their home. 
So really there's this, this huge gap and other BIPOC communities fall, fall everywhere in between with white Minnesotans, you know, still having the highest home ownership rate, not only in Minnesota, but, but really in the country as well. So we partnered with the Freedom Library to host an initial event around the housing gap, and it was a total success. Um, it led us to form a small working group that we now call Eastside, call Eastside Housing Justice. And it was unique in the sense that it was a coalition of businesses, nonprofits, and some community leaders just coming together around housing justice in the community. And we hosted a series of film screenings, um, community conversations. We had the MHFA Commissioner Jennifer Ho come and speak. So really it was just a successful series of events. And I was really proud of it because it gave folks a chance to sit down in small groups and talk about their feelings around housing justice. And housing is a really nuanced issue. Um, so it was just, it was really wonderful. Um, around February of this last year, we held a meeting to determine the best practices for ourselves moving forward. And one thing that we really identified was the need for further capacity. So that was the direction we were going in before COVID hit. And then that kind of forced us to take a hiatus from our work before Peter and Clarence approached me in uh, mid-August and asked me to come on as the, the program director. And I said, absolutely. And so now we've just been carrying on with the work. Wonderful. So the Housing Justice Summit, I believe, is December 10. Can you talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the summit, what people should expect, what, um, what the goals are, what's happening online, so where can people find more information? Yeah, so before I go into the details of the event, I'll just say there is a Facebook link under the Eastside Freedom Library Facebook. Um, it's just called the Second Annual Eastside Housing Summit. We held one last year, and this is building off of that. And on that Facebook uh, event, you can find a Zoom registration. So that's how we're going to be hosting it this year in order to really be the safest we can. As far as the event goes, um, you know, I think to explain, the, to explain the summit, it's important to touch base on what we did last year with our first summit. And we had reached this kind of critical point where people were really interested and we were having folks say, hey, you know, we want to we want to keep talking about this. We want to move forward into taking some action steps. Can we get together in, in a larger group setting and have that conversation? And so we partnered up with um, Firebird Design Studios with the artist Leon Wang to host this first summit to really visualize what success could look like um, if we were to build a movement around health justice that was really a grassroots movement. And so we, we made these beautiful logos towards the end of, uh, of 2019. We created what we call the Eastside Housing Report, which was kind of a summary of what we did. And it was just a beautiful way to understand the momentum that we had built. Um, obviously, COVID disrupted that. And so when we started planning the second housing summit, we took a moment to say, what are we doing here with this? You know, we have not been out and about the community engaging in the way we wanted to. And so we decided to, instead of really, you know, thinking so much about solutions, we decided to pull back and reground ourselves in the values that brought us, up, brought us to the work in the first place. 
So one of the ways that we decided to do that was to partner with the Million Artists Movement. So Sydney Haraday and Maria Ask uh, agreed to, to co-facilitate the summit. And really what it's going to be is folks are going to come in and we're going to have a chance to, you know, explore some scenarios together and go into breakout groups just like how we would uh, under, in normal circumstances and just have a chance to have some really honest conversations, um, reconnecting everyone around the values that brought them to the work in the first place. And so it's almost like we're restarting the engine and getting folks back together again so that moving forward into 2021, we can recapture the momentum we had and push forward and, and keep doing great events and, and keep reaching out to new people and, and pulling more folks into the movement building that we're doing around housing justice on the east side. I'm really excited for this event. I think um, housing justice is back. So I'm trained as an organizer. And back in the day, I'd worked on a campaign with the Westminster Apartments in St. Paul, um, doing some communications work for them. Um, housing justice is one of those things that just um, hits on so many levels and it intersects on so yep. many different levels of, of justice work that I think it's really powerful, especially this collaboration between the library and the businesses and your work, just like all of these partners. Um, yeah. That's really exciting work. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so uh, just a reminder, is this event open to everybody or is there a, like a limit? Who who's, who's specifically invited? You know, I think that this is this is an issue that affects all Minnesotans. And so when I think about who I want at these events, like, yes, we want to start with Eastsiders. But after that, there's so many people who are coming to the East Side who are interacting with the community uh, that I think it's, it's an event that's open to everyone. And I think it's important to note that housing issues don't just impact certain communities. They impact all of us. I was just having this conversation with my dad earlier where we were talking about you know, I've been doing a lot of research for my position, and in Ramsey County alone, the population by 2035 is going to increase by roughly 100,000 people. And you can bet that there is not going to be enough housing built because already uh, housing costs are rising dramatically. So when I think about who should be at this event, yeah, it should be people from St. Paul, but we all need to be having these kind of conversations, and we need to be, all be grounding ourselves in our values as we look uh, to find solutions and we look to build solidarity around housing, mm -hmm. period. Um, what is that? Uh, you mentioned solidarity around housing, and I know that uh, that can have a really specific meaning depending on who you are. What does solidarity sure. around housing justice mean to you? You know, I, I think it can be looked at from many different angles. Um, I was listening to this NPR interview the other day with Samuel Strong, who's uh, one of the Native American leaders who's working on housing issues. And he was talking about the fact that most, you know, eight out of 10 people, when they see someone who's experiencing homelessness, they think it's, it's that person's fault. And that's just simply not true. And so you can look at it from a homelessness angle. You can look at it from, uh, you know, a lack of affordable housing. You can look at, uh, you know, building affordable housing that doesn't even fill people's needs. There's just a lot of different ways to view what housing justice is. And I think the truth is that there is no one single solution or answer. And so when I think about building housing justice, it's about bringing people from all levels together 
to find solutions to empower all Minnesotans because we all do better when we all do better. And people that are not worried about paying the rent, you know, can live much fuller lives and, and are able to be out and about in the community in a more powerful way. I'm someone that's experienced, you know, housing insecurity in the past. And I know that now that I'm not, I have so much energy and I feel so much better when I do my work. And so building solidarity is about bringing people who maybe have never experienced housing insecurity and those who have, you know, experienced housing insecurity perennially, bringing all those folks together because this matters to everyone. Wonderful. And is there a link where people can learn more information about the event and your organization and the partnership? Sure. You know, everything is on the, the Facebook link for the event. There is also a specific Eastside Housing Justice Facebook that we post stuff to periodically. Um, but through the Freedom Library's newsletter and, and website, you know, our work is highlighted throughout that. Wonderful. And we'll make sure to share that link um, after the segment is done and make sure to promote it during our events and announcements section at the end. Um, That'd be wonderful. Wonderful. And is there any other information you think people need to know about housing justice, your work, the the event, anything else? Yeah, you know, here's one thing I would say about this. This is really hard work, and everyone <laughs> ought to be paying attention to housing issues. But that's no reason we shouldn't have fun, and we shouldn't, you know, enjoy our company together in community. I love these opportunities to talk to people like you because I'm excited about what we're doing. I think that uh, you know, I've been having I've been having conversations with people, even playwrights, who are you know, writing plays about, uh, you know, changing policy around housing. And I just think that there's so many imaginative ways that we can come together around this. And I think a lot of people can burn out when they're thinking about, about different aspects of justice work, or they can burn out when they're, you know, looking at all society's problems. But this is a great opportunity to come together around something that we really tangibly can make a difference uh, with quickly and have a really fun time doing it. And I don't think I could do my job if I didn't have fun. And that doesn't mean I'm not taking this seriously because this is a, a crisis right now. But I also think that just bringing this air of positivity to the work, coming together and, and you know, forming relationships with, with everyone doing this, this justice work, that's a really important thing. I agree. Uh, we do need to find joy in the work, and we do need to be able to laugh, and we do need to be able to, to do that work together. I mean, that's yeah. that's part of where our power comes from, is our capacity to find joy. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you for so much for speaking with us on here today. Um, we will definitely follow up um, and commit to talking about housing justice on the east side more, housing justice more generally, um, and we'll definitely want you on air again if, if you'd be interested. Absolutely. You know, I spend all day long just trying to come up with solutions to to these issues. Um, it's an on, ongoing work, and that's part of the great thing about it. Thanks to Ben for joining me on air. You can find more about Eastside Housing Justice at facebook.com slash E-S-H-J-S-T-P. Up next, we have Denise Specht, the president of Education Minnesota one of Minnesota's teachers union. We will be talking about how we can best support teachers in this moment during this pandemic, 
But just a note that Education Minnesota sponsors the uptake, which sponsors and co-produces this program. Education Minnesota has no editorial control over the uptakes work or this show, um, but we do want to be transparent about their sponsorship and their support of our work. Here's that interview now. Hi, Denise. Thank you so much for joining us on air today at the Radical News Radio Hour. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It is really great to have you. So um, for our audience who may not know you, um, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Okay. Thank you. I am Denise Speck. Um, I'm currently serving as president of Education Minnesota, um, but I am a licensed educator. I'm a licensed elementary, so I taught mainly elementary school um, my whole career, taught in the middle school a little bit. I'm a fourth generation educator. Uh, my parents were teachers. Uh, my grandparents were, were teachers. So um, I guess I come from, from a long DNA of educating, but um, one of the reasons why I went into teaching is because um, I believe in the power of a public education and um, what it does for communities and how it can really open open minds and help students achieve their dreams. Mm-hmm. I love teaching. I love that. My um, I'm a, my audience knows I'm a teacher, but my you know my grandfather, my great grandparents, they were also teachers back home in the Middle East. So I, I also come from a long line of teachers. <laughs> it's amazing um, how that happens. It is. I think it's a little contagious. It is. Unfortunately, I think um, we're finding in these times that um, not as many people uh, want to go into teaching, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, we're we're finding that a lot of educators are just um, finding it harder and harder to recommend um, this profession, which I think is an amazing career and something that more people should should take a look at. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I mentioned contagious, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've been in it. How are you feeling right now? How are things? I mean, what's what's this moment to you? Well, I think I think for me and a lot of the educators that I know, um, you know, we're we're kind of in survival mode. Uh, most educators right now are uh, exhausted. They're stressed. Um, they're overwhelmed. Um, mainly because of the uh, conditions in our schools right now. Most of this is due to the fact that the virus has not only impacted, um, you know, a, a school's ability to be open, that's an obvious, um, but also there just are not enough supplies. And because of the community spread right now, um, a lot of our school districts are not able to staff um, the learning models that they're in. So that that ends up adding a lot of stress on the educators who are either well enough or aren't quarantining. Um, so that's a big factor. I would say that most educators are seeing that um, the learning models that they're in are just, they're not being supported the way they should be with resources or time. Um, there's just a lot going on. Yeah. I know it's tough. It's tough for the teachers, the technology is tough, the lack of resources. Try I I think there was a study there was a study that came out I think yesterday from an organization, a nonprofit that administers a test that goes to elementary school kids a few times a year. Mm. And they were saying, you know, kids didn't um kids doing online learning 
they're not falling behind too much in reading, they're a little bit behind in math, but it turns out most of the kids who are most at risk didn't take the test. And so a lot of those kids that we're worried about already, we don't actually know how they're doing with the online learning and the hybrid model and all of these things. Yeah, that's definitely a concern. I know that when we were in distance, distant learning at the very beginning of, of the pandemic. You know, we it was about two months, two and a half months. And when, you know, the, the academic year ended and um, the summer break started, there were educators all over the place saying, um, you know, I'm worried about, you know, so-and-so, or there are a few kids that I just never saw once, um, you know, uh, the, the brick and mortar, um, school, you know, shut down and we were in distance learning and I'm so, so worried. And what they were really looking forward to is, um, you know, the, the beginning of the next school year and thinking about how do we transition kids in? What do we provide them or what are we going to do to support students coming out of a two and a half month, you know, a, a distance learning model? Um, and that was that was over the summer. And I don't know that anybody really imagined that we wouldn't be in person in the fall. Um, it was just kind of unimaginable. Like, okay, we did this two and a half month thing, and now we're going to go back. And we're, we can't go back to normal. We know that that, you know, isn't the best. We, you know, things weren't good for all students before the pandemic. They certainly weren't great during distance learning last spring. We know we, we can't go back to normal. But, you know, here we found ourselves at the end of the summer um, looking at uh, numbers on the rise. Um, unfortunately, school districts with not the resources they needed to open up safely. Um, and just kind of that unimaginable, oh my goodness, um, we might not be face-to-face -face like we know we want to be. Mm -hmm. uh, that was really overwhelming. Um, and it was very hard because every educator I know wants to be face-to-face, -face, you know, with their students. That's why they get it, got into this. Um, but they knew that they knew what their uh, school buildings looked like. They knew what was required, you know, from a safety standpoint. And they just knew that um, their buildings were not going to be safe places for teaching and learning. It was devastating for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. How do we, we're going to talk about the legislative session that's upcoming in a minute, but how do we take care of teachers as well right now? I mean, I think that it's, you know, both students and teachers need our support right now. How do we take care of teachers in this moment? That, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you asked that because um, I, I've heard people say that teachers are kind of like nurses. You know, nurses uh, put patients, you know, up, ahead of them themselves and educators are always putting other people um, you know ahead of them and we really do need to be looking at um, the mental health of, of educators it's important we do that for students too I mean I I know that hearts are breaking and educators are seeing the holes and the cracks and and the need and it's you know when you're seeing this through a computer screen knowing it just it's helpless uh, but we do need to be thinking about the, the mental health of, of educators and trying to figure out how can we support them as professionals 
what does a what does a professional workday look like for an educator? It just isn't sustainable to expect educators to work, you know, 13, 14, 15 hours a day. And that's what's happening right now in the learning models that we're in. Um, I think it also is a, an opportunity for us to think about what is absolutely essential. What do we want educators doing? Um, we want them with students. We want them focused on students. We want them planning the best lessons possible. We want them reaching out to parents. Um, let's make sure that we're giving them the time and the training to do that. And let's take a look at what is, what's the unnecessary stuff? What are the things that we're asking of educators that, um, you know, we can live without? Um, I think that's a lesson to be learned here. Okay. Thank you. I think that's really important. Like, I think we need to, this pandemic is going to, needs to do it needs to lead to something different like new ways of operating i think mm -hmm. um or else it might not be a pandemic that we face again but we're going to face this moment again in in our lifetimes right um and i think like we need to relook at our systems of power and our systems of oppression and the ways we kind of the systems of trauma that we exist in and figure out how to respond to them mm -hmm. um, yeah if you think about um you know uh, the role of the role of community in in this pandemic, and um, you know the role of community in how they help support a school. Think about when we went into distance learning um, back in March. You know we didn't move into that learning model until we could figure out two things. One was making sure that we were able to care for um, children of essential workers. Like that was really important and what that really does is shine shines a light on the importance of affordable child care um, that our essential workers needed to have that figured out so it was not a worry for them that they could go to work and you know um, take care of, of of patients and 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 the the needs of, of the people in their community the other thing we had to figure out is how we were going to feed children um, those two things care and and food hunger mm -hmm. um those are two really basic necessities two things that schools kind of you know filled the gap a little bit you know they're things that schools provide and we could not shut down until we figured those two things out i mean to me that is such a those are two things that if we could just figure out those two things i mean that would be a big step into a better direction um, for our communities and for our families. Um, but beyond that, it is, um, you know, inaccessible broadband, um, the inaccessibility of technology. There are holes everywhere. This isn't just a rural thing. Um, this is an inner city thing. There are places in, um, you know, Minneapolis and St. Paul where people can't get connected. Um, that's a problem. I think we should really think it about, you know, is, is it time for internet to be a public utility? Mm -hmm. So those three things are really at the top of my mind. Childcare for everyone, um, feed kids, feed families, for goodness sake. Um, internet is a public utility. Um, and then I think, you know, we can take things even, you know, further. Um, 
healthcare. Uh, this pandemic really showed where the gaps are in affordable health care. Um, we found it in parent surveys. We found it in um, surveys of our of, of educators. Um, we know what communities and where um, COVID is hitting the hardest. We've got to figure this out. Um, and I, I think there are some bold ideas out there that we should certainly take a look at when we come on the other end of this. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of some of those ideas, legislative session is begins maybe just a couple of days over. And Education Minnesota, which as I said at the beginning before we spoke, is a sponsor for the uptake and you know support our coverage. Um you're always advocating and, and working out of the capital. Are there any priorities this year that people should be aware of? Right. I mean we're gonna continue talking about where the opportunity gaps are in our system. Um, and a lot of that comes down to funding. Um, last the, the last two years, we had um, a couple of initiatives around um, funding programs that would bring more educators of color into the field. Um, we just do not have the representation we should in in almost all of our schools. Um, so we were looking for some funding to help with the Teacher of Color Act. Um, but we also know that there are um, school districts that simply cannot survive um, on the funding that they've got. I know that um, sometimes we sound like a, a broken record around funding, but we all know where the schools are, um, where um, kids don't have the same opportunities. We all know where the good schools are, and I believe that no matter um, where you live, what you look like, what your religion is, no matter where you are in Minnesota, Every school should be the best school, and I think we need to take a good hard look at what does what do our schools need um, so that we can provide that. So we are going to be looking at um, having conversations around fully funding racially just public schools in Minnesota. Um, we're taking that very seriously. I understand that um, you know the budget is kind of in question, although um, you know we got some good news uh, earlier this week about. Um, a forecast, but we have, um, there is wealth in Minnesota. Um, the richest Minnesotans and the most wealthy corporations are not paying their fair share right now. And I think that it is time that they do. Um, so we're going to have a conversation around what our schools need. And we plan on having, um, uh, we plan on holding all electives accountable. There are uh, people who get elected who um, become obstacles. They, um, you know, say no to what communities and families need. And we have to say no to that. I think it's time that we hold people accountable and that we are very transparent around who is keeping us from thriving. Who are those electeds um, that are saying no? Um, uh, we have to expose them. Um, we just, it's time. We can no longer exist. We have too many, too many people who aren't able to follow their dreams, who are not thriving in this economy, um, and that just has to stop. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Is there anything else you want to share about the work of Education Minnesota or anything else right now before we before we let you go? No, I, I think that, um, you know, with 
hopefully a vaccine on the horizon. Um, we're looking at, um, you know, a hopeful future here. Um, I do think that if we, if everybody out in our communities can do what they need to do right now, um, you know, wear your masks, be distant, wash your hands, get tested, um, we will see uh, our schools opening up um, sooner than later. Um, but if we keep kind of down the path that we're on, um, unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot of our schools remain, um, you know, uh, doing distance learning. And I hope that we can get back in person very soon. And when we do, then I think we need to have um, the best conversations we can for what are our lessons learned, what we what do we know, um, what did we what did we see, where are the gaps, and how can we make our schools uh, better? We have a chance to reset. Um, let's not let's not blow it. Thanks to Denise for joining us on air. A few weeks ago, we aired an interview with Representative Rena Moran about the future of the House Select Committee on Racial Justice. Representative Moran was recently named as the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. So we're replaying that interview now. Here's this pre-recorded segment, and we will be hearing more from Representative Moran once the legislative session starts. Our hope is to have her on air regularly talking about the work uh, the racial justice work out of the Minnesota State Legislature. So you're right. We have completed our, our hearings portions and we're gathering all the information, all the recommendations that we have received from community, um, the experts in the field, those who presented, and also community members. And we're bringing all those recommendations together so that uh, we can... Um, take those recommendations, create a document, present it to members of the select committee to have more conversations about that and vote those recommendations that have been put together um, and begin to move it into 2021 is to, one, oh, there's so much we want to do, right? There's so much we want to do. First thing we're going to do is we're going to take those recommendations and introduce those recommendations to our caucus. Uh, our chairs of the different committees, um, and so that we in the Minnesota House of Representatives can begin to lead through a race-conscious lens on how we can improve outcomes, not just in healthcare, but in education, in jobs, and workforce. Um, uh, it's it's going to be a, a really holistic approach to solutions through the lens that we saw been presented uh, within those hearings that took place. Mm -hmm. And then second, we would like to also, you know, uh, for bill introduction, is to take some of these recommendations and to be able to see members take up those recommendations and put them into language that, where they can be introduced in, in, in committees. Mm -hmm. So, this was the first year that we had the Select Committee on Racial Justice, correct? This is the first time in Minnesota history that we have focused on the Select Committee on Racial Justice. And the first time in Minnesota history that we have declared racism as a health care crisis in the state of Minnesota. Yeah. Yes. I think that's particularly pertinent this year 
in the midst of the pandemic when we're talking about, um, you know, uh, black communities being hospitalized for COVID at four or five times the rate of, you know, white communities. Like the numbers are just um, absolutely tragic. Yeah. You know, we're looking at it. Um, and I will say as an educator, one of the things I've been telling my students just with this sort of information is they're not just in the midst of one pandemic. They're really in the midst of two, and that second one is racial injustice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What is this going to mean for January as the legislature um, comes back into a regular session? These discussions have been had. You've talked about doing a presentation around the recommendations, but, I mean, the politics moves slow. What what can we expect as session comes back into into being in, in the new year? Yeah. And you're right, you know, um, politics does move up slow. Um, and when you are a divided legislature, as we are here in the state of Minnesota, uh, more importantly, we are the only divided legislature in the country uh, with competing ideology around um, racial injustices, around disparities, around racism. And around, and around structural, systemic racism, you have one body who has declared it, has named it, and is, is recognizing it and in a way through these hearings, validating all of that. And then we have a Senate who refused to um, say that structural racism is real, that racism happened, that the United States of America is, was created on the back of um, black men and women and families, slavery was real. Um, we So that is what we're working with, two different ideologies competing um, that is uh, polar opposite from each other. And so we have to be really clear that in the Minnesota House of Representatives, this is a, a priority for us. Uh, as we move forward into 2021, but nothing happens in the legislature through one body. In the legislature, a bill has to be introduced in House. It has to be introduced in the Senate. And it has to move through those bodies and pass off each respective floors, the Minnesota House floor and the Senate floor, in order to go before the governor for signature. And mm-hmm. so our work going into 2021 as a leg- as a legislative body, myself and others as legislators, is to just do that. Introduce the bills, get some companion bills moving in the Senate. But there is also a place and a role for community to play. And that is that um, we need legislators, we need, we need community members from across the state of Minnesota just as well as they came out and proved that their vote matter in the polling place to also be present at the Capitol, to be present, to be sending emails, to be sending letters to, you know, Republicans, to the governor, to House members to say that this is a priority for us and it needs to be a priority for the state. Because I am one who believes that the power of the people it is what moves 
legislators and officials to do the right thing. That is what happened with George Floyd movement and the protesting here in, in Minnesota, um, around the country and around the world. We had to produce something around police accountability, and we did it because the people were speaking to us. And so my hope is that we can have that same type of willpower coming from the people around racial injustices. Mm-hmm. I think that's really exciting and powerful to me. And I know to the people who would read this article, listen to this episode, that this idea that community has so much power in that legislative yes. process. Um, what do you want next year's? Uh, you've hinted at this, you've touched on this, but I'd love to go in more in detail when thinking about racial justice in the legislature. What do you want next year's session to look like? Where do you want this conversation on racial injustice, uh, racial justice and racial injustice to go? Well, I, I want to see it moving through the body. I want to see us be in, in collaboration and in partnership with community members. I do believe that a lot of these initiatives will be led by our People of Color Indigenous Caucus. And so as, as diverse uh, as we are currently now in the Minnesota House of Representatives, I think we now are up to, look, 16 legislators of color. And mm-hmm. again, that is the most diverse representation in the history of Minnesota politics. And so wow. with that, that allows us to each respectively to go into our communities individually, you know, with the Asian caucus, with the black caucus, with the Latina caucus, with the indigenous caucus, and again, to begin to um, engage and um, uh, have conversations and you know, take our community recommendations and begin to build on that while also doing the same within the Capitol. And it's going to take all of that. It's going to take all of that and more on the issue that is so important as this issue is. But we know that in the midst of that, we do have a Republican Senate who do not see the world the way we see the world. Mm -hmm. But I'm hopeful that we can find some compromise around some of these issues that is that is that affects you know educational outcomes you know having more teachers of color in the classroom um just really creating more pathways you know making sure that we're not suspending black and brown bodies at schools in a high rate that we're looking at social distancing in the era of this virus in a way that is not going to allow our kids to fall further behind creative processes that's going to invest in their lives and their parents' lives and nonprofits' lives and our community lives so that we can move forward. And so our hope is to see that in every every area. Our black businesses, our businesses of color are being impacted by this pandemic. Our small businesses, our, our moms and pop businesses, we need to make sure that they are able to survive through this pandemic, right, because it is those moms and pop businesses in our community that is the economic drivers in our community. And so we have to make sure that we are moving policies in a way that lifts them up and supports them in that way. And definitely within our health and human service arena, looking at maternal health, you know, utilizing more doulas, you know, making sure our community health clinics are being are surviving because those community health clinics in our community or where we see our 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 
families uh, interacting, going to, right? Because they have people that work there that looks like like them, that are a reflection of them, that speak multiple languages. And so we have work to do that that help us, especially at this moment when we are in a pandemic, that our communities are not left out the process and that we're doing our work through a race equity lens. Mm -hmm. So I know that many people are unfamiliar with legislative processes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm very curious about is how the select committee came to be and um, whether we can expect to see it again. So the, um, the select committee came out of uh, really Representative Ruth Richardson. You know, we were all having conversation about um, declaring racism a public health crisis. And really, this is a movement that is going on across the country. Well, Definitely, I know I'm a part of two national organizations, the National Black Caucus of State Legislators and the National Organization of Black Elected uh, Legislators who are women. With, within those two national organizations, this conversation has been going on with black leaders across the country. And so we know with Minnesota having the worst disparities, some of the worst disparities in the country, that it was important that we also lead in the state of Minnesota around this narrative uh, of racism being a healthcare crisis. Mm -hmm. And so uh, under the leadership of uh, Representative Ruth Richardson, who sat down and wrote the, wrote the language, and then we introduced this language in the Minnesota House of Representatives through a resolution a resolution that officially declared racism as a public health crisis that came to the Minnesota House chamber where we had open discussions about it and we voted the resolution of the House floor with bipartisan support. So in the Minnesota House, it was supported by all the Democrats, and I think we were able to get at least five or six Republicans to all support it. So it's a bipartisan uh, resolution that passed off the House floor. So within the language of the resolution was was this part of the, of the, uh, uh, the resolution, was one part of the resolution saying that we will create a subcommittee to work on uh, racism, racism as a health care crisis. And so that is how it came to be. It came out of that resolution that was passed off the House floor. Wonderful. I always thought the topics discussed during the select committee were so powerful on, you know, adverse childhood experiences of racism, mm -hmm. looking at childhood um, mortality and maternal mortality. I mean, they, these were incredibly mm -hmm. powerful topics, and they were presented in ways that were really engaging. But I do think the most powerful one was, um, I think, the fourth meeting when test, public testimony was, was taken, fourth yes. or fifth. That, for yes. me, uh, we aired that one in um, an hour of that episode on the show because we mm. really thought it was appropriate to just put that out there for people to hear. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's something that, you know, as, as black legislators, 
um, as let's say color, because we do know and recognize that often um, community is not able to participate in the legislative process because, you know, so much is going on in their lives. You know, they have kids, they have family. But we also know that they are the experts and that their uh, stories and their recommendations and how they see the world was important for us to to do and create a process to make that happen, but also to record those recommendations. And so, like you, really, that was one of my favorite parts of the hearings also. It was powerful, just powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you think that this neighborhood, Frogtown, St. Paul, that we need to know about the work happening for racial justice in the legislature. Anything that you think that, I mean, I know as reporters, we don't get every story, but is there anything you think is happening that you think is really crucial that we understand about the work? Uh, well, one, I guess it's important for our community to know that this work is going on at the Capitol and it's been led by legislators of color. I think that is first, because I think it's important for community to know that uh, as we are discussing um, racism at the Capitol, that we hear, we see you, we hear you, you are us, we come from the community. Um, And uh, for the people of color indigenous caucus, which we call the posse caucus, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, uh, we are not just legislators. We are mothers, we are aunts, we are fathers. Um, you know, we are from these communities. And we just so happened took uh, it up to another step to say that it's important that we are a part of the legislature so that we can bring our lived experience to the Capitol and begin to transform how the legislative process works and how we engage at the Capitol importantly, voices of our communities into the capital, right? And bring those also voices back from the capital back to our community. That is really highly important to us as legislators who know that laws and policies have not always been created fair and just for our community. And even when laws and policies have been created, it's the practices that we see back happening in our community, in the workplace, and other places there are uh, unfair and and, and unjust. Thanks to Representative Moran for joining us on air. Just a few announcements before I let you go for today. Our sponsor, The Uptake, a community news organization, is currently in the midst of a two-month fundraiser supported by Newsmatch and the Institute for Nonprofit News. They've got 5,500 left in an $11,500 match um, matching grant and every dollar helps. You can give a few dollars at givemn.org slash organization slash uptake. That's U-P-T-A-K-E. And as the executive director, we thank you so much for your generosity in this time. Every dollar helps us keep offering um, our free community journalism trainings and our free news platform. And it allows us to keep working with our community journalists and training um, who are who are all paid for their work. Um, and receive the free training simultaneously. Uh, The Uptake will also be offering one of those free community journalism trainings 
um, coming up on December 12th from 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. via Zoom. You can email this show at RadicalNewsRadioHour at gmail.com to reach me. i request any details and RSVP. Just a reminder uh, that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy.